Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, we take a look at how the race to find a COVID vaccine has become a global power struggle. Also on the podcast, how much of its electoral support is the government gambling with its hardline Brexit position? And last, a modern-day Caligula in Thailand. I hear about King Rama X. First up, vaccines have almost always been in the realm of scientists, but because of the threat of COVID-19 to the entire world, this time round it's also become political, as Matthew Lynn writes in a cover piece this week. Here's Donald Trump. So we're going to have a vaccine very soon, maybe even before a very special date. You know what date I'm talking about. We're also joined on a podcast by Professor Beata Kampman, who is head of the Vaccine Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So Matthew, you heard from Trump there. I mean, it really seems like this vaccines race is becoming a playground fight between world leaders. Can you paint the picture of what it's currently looking like? Yeah, I think, I mean, um, you know, Trump's not the most guarded politician in the world. Uh, and, and the quote makes it pretty clear what he was thinking of. I mean, I guess the date could be Christmas he's talking about. It, but I think it's the presidential election in November when he says, you know, which date I'm talking about. The race of the vaccine, and it started off as a scientific endeavor, which is what it should be. And that's obvious enough. But it's become in the last, I guess, month or two months, very, very political. And that was always, always inevitable. The global damage from the epidemic is uh, economic damage and the political damage and the damage to society is so severe that, you know, political leaders are, are sitting there and they're hearing the scientists say, this and this could take three years, this could take five years, and they're saying, no, <laughs> um, I, we want it now, and they're prepared to cut corners. And you stop and think about it, you know, there are just such huge advantages to getting a vaccine first. So, I mean, there's one just obvious one, which I mentioned in the intro, which Trump's quote touches on, which is obviously, you know, if he could get a vaccine out before Election Day, and if he can start vaccinations uh, before Election Day, and there was a story, I think, about 10 days or so that the states were being prepared for possible approval I think on November the 1st I think actually he was thinking of the Oxford vaccine at that stage so he's probably scrapped that one but now he's going to be looking at the Pfizer vaccine or someone else you know if he could get one out before election day then he probably wins re-election doesn't he that's a heck of a big prize and then the prizes are equally big around the world for, for Vladimir Putin he's already injected himself uh, he gave the vaccine to his daughter you know it's kind of quite Roman isn't it you know um, it's kind of things one of the Caesars might have done let's test it on the daughter and it'll calm the gods down you know for any kind of political leader the Chinese as well for any kind of political leader obviously it's a big scientific prize but it's turning into a political prize and it's becoming very very muddy the science and the politics probably not a good thing but lots of bad things happen in the world and I think we just have to be realistic about it a chance of instant redemption you mentioned in your piece that was the Oxford vaccine, probably, because, I mean, you know, in Britain, we haven't had the best response in the world. It's been pretty shambolic at times. You kind of notice that when, whenever it seems kind of particularly hopeless, then suddenly a story suddenly miraculously appears. Like, we just got the vaccine. Another five minutes, guys. Hang, hang in there. <laughs> it's going it's to be there. Obviously, you know, obviously we had bad news on the Oxford vaccine this week. You know, we don't know, Beta, when they tell us a little bit more about that, how bad that is, whether that's normal. Um, it's hard for the layperson to really judge on that. But, you know, 
as the Imperial vaccine. I mean, that's a pretty good name if you uh, for Boris Johnson to start waving around. Uh, then there's the Cambridge vaccine, uh, and it's the same in every country. Obviously, the Chinese, you know, would get huge prestige if they could have the first vaccine. You know, for presidency, it would be a massive boost. It would announce China's arrival, uh, not just as an economic power, but as a global power on the global stage, and obviously for Russia. But even you know, even in France, President Macron, if Sanofi or one of the French companies came up with a vaccine, instant re-election. I mean, he would have to, wouldn't have to worry about that. Same for Germany. So there are huge stakes here for political leaders. And Beata, you're a scientist, not a politician. So how do you react to what seems to be the politicization of this race? Yeah, I find that more and more problematic. I think we need to just realise this is not the arms race and it is not the Cold War. And we're not on this as a race against each other. It's a race with each other against an infectious disease. And that infectious disease affects the world. And I think what people underestimate is that uh, actually the world is a much more connected space these days. And no one is safe until everyone is safe, which is what Gavi is using to advocate for equitable access to vaccines as well. So I don't quite agree with this take on, uh, you know, we have to have this in a specific country at a specific time, and it's actually a political gimmick. Mm. But it seems clear that politicians and certainly uh, trying to say that to voters, you know, if you look at the way Matt Hancock talks about the Oxford vaccine, it definitely is seen as a boon to the government's credibility itself. So politicians seem to be looking at it in a different way. Do you worry that because of the political impetus, the vaccines are being rushed through? So the, the whole point is we need a vaccine, and I believe it will be more than one, that is safe and effective. And that requires a process. And to, to say we can have it by a specific date just ignores the process that is implicated. And I was quite glad to see the statement from nine big pharma companies who are all in the process of developing vaccines in advanced clinical trials to say, actually, we're not going to file any dossiers to the FDA and therefore nothing can be approved unless we have filed a dossier. And we won't do that until we have safety data and data about efficacy. And I think that's a really right step because it brings the science and the process back to the forefront of this otherwise uh, very unscientific and potentially dangerous and unethical discussion. Matthew, what about the worry that, you know, if China develops a vaccine first and Russia claims that Sputnik, its vaccine, is working, that the West might not take these vaccines that are developed by political enemies and vice versa as well? You know, I mean, would Trump really be advocating Chinese vaccine or would she really be advocating the American one? Is there a worry that because of this vaccine nationalism, we're actually one step further away from immunity? That's definitely the big downside to it. That's the big risk. I mean, it's. It, it, I guess it was inevitable given the scale of the global problem. I mean, in an ideal world, you know, we'd have some kind of global Manhattan project and, you know, the WHO would and the UN would organise all the best scientists in the world and they'd have unlimited budgets and, and they'd cooperate. But I guess that's a different universe from the one that we live in, which is a bit money. But it's absolutely true. You know, if, if a vaccine seems political, I mean, Trump is almost the worst person you can think of in the world um, to be telling us. Public this, health advice. Well, yeah, I mean, not just in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Just because he's kind of just a little bit tarnished in his, in his relationship to the truth and accuracy and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, people around the world would look at it, you know, a, a Donald vaccine and we're going to have, you know, uh, genuine experts like Beta telling us, you know, this is too rushed. This is not safe. You know, a Boris vaccine in this country, you know, a lot of people don't want to take it. Some people will love it, but other people they'd in- instantly dislike it. But there, there is one. So I think that's obviously a big, big danger. It'll undermine trust. And we're already going to have... You know, being an interesting issue about getting trust, you need 
Beda can probably help us out with the actual percentages, but you need big percentages of people to take it to create you know, immunity amongst the general population. But there's one, one little caveat I'd add to that, which is if you take the comparison with the space race, you know, the Cold War comparison, of course it did actually work. So it was politicised. There was no, you know, getting to the moon was a very, very political project. Getting there before the Russians was a very political rush, very political project. I think if you go back to the speech by JFK in the early 60s, you know, he said, we will have a man on the moon before 1970, you know, come what may. And they spent an extraordinary percentage of GDP I think it got up to 3, 3 or 4% of American GDP. Just an extraordinary sum of money doing this you know, slightly strange thing. But they did get a man on the moon, <laughs> and they did cut corners. And so that's just my little, my, the little, the little caveat I'd add to it, is that innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens when you mobilise you know, vast amounts of know-how, of scientific expertise, but also a goal and money. You know, vaccine nationalism, it, it sounds bad, and it does have big risks, but it may have that one up- upside that it focuses resources on, you know, uh, what is absolutely, you know, a really bad problem in the world. Beata, can you briefly outline the differences in the vaccine's approaches? As I understand it, they're trying to do different things. Well, yeah, just let me come in here because I reject quite a few of the things that uh, Matthew Sish just said. I think the moon race is a totally different issue. If people hadn't gotten to the moon, there wouldn't have been millions of people potentially dying in the next 10 years. So just to put that in perspective, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't this was to a totally that. different yeah. uh, venture, Matthew, and I do not like this militarization of this whole issue. We're not talking about a military achievement. We are talking, though, about pulling funds together. And that's precisely uh, what people have invested in and what governments have also invested. I mean, you know, governments have invested in a whole portfolio of different vaccines because we don't yet know which one will work. And to tell you the honest truth, we don't know if any of them will come through and also if any of them will give long-term protection because we don't know what you really need to protect against these coronaviruses. And the vaccine needs to be do better than nature because we get coronaviruses in a repeated fashion. And people mustn't forget about that. So the vaccine that might be on the horizon might have to be given once a year or so, which would be you know, a serious endeavour and will only happen if manufacturing facilities pull together, if there's continuous investment. No country can go that alone unless they want to shut all their bridges and their borders and no one can go in and out of their country. Peter, from your perspective, would you trust a vaccine that the Chinese authorities and the Russian authorities said was OK? So um, it isn't actually up to me to say whether I trust that vaccine or not. We have agencies in place in every single country that has to approve a vaccine for use in a particular country, even if it was licensed somewhere else. So if a vaccine was licensed in China, for example, for the UK, the um, MHRA, which is our medicines control agency, would have to very critically look at that licensure and the data that led to the licensure and can then advise us to buy into this product or not. You know, there are plenty of vaccines that are licensed initially in other countries and they're then used worldwide, but it means that their national agencies have actually approved their use. So I don't think we should say, you know, a vaccine from China would not be used in the UK. I don't think that's what we would be saying. But the dossier that was filed to the regulatory authorities in China would also be um, critically analysed in the country where the vaccine was to be used. And Birta, while we have you, um, to go back to one of the early questions that Matthew posed, this Oxford vaccine pause that we've heard about this week, how serious is it? 
Okay, well, it's following exactly the roots of good clinical practice that should be followed in any medical product trial, including vaccines. So if there's a signal which um, gives you the impression there might be a serious adverse reaction, uh, which might or might not be related to the vaccine, because 50% of the people in that trial are not actually getting the COVID vaccine, they're getting a control product. So we don't even know yet whether uh, it is, has anything to do with the COVID vaccine. But the process is to get a data safety monitoring board to look very, very critically at the evidence that there is. And they've done exactly the right thing. This is a common procedure in clinical trials. And I think it proves that the belts and braces that are being applied are actually um, functioning. And it's good that it's been also uh, communicated because people really need to have you know, trust in uh, the processes that are getting uh, that are in place to make sure that uh, the vaccine is safe and it's not just a question of someone telling you oh I would take this one or that one it's uh, really has to be proven on a large scale and it's not you know 78 people vaccinated in Russia nobody will take that vaccine until they've had their phase three trials and and you know nobody will recommend it to anyone unless it's some sort of totalitarian regime that can give vaccinations to people without them having a say. That's not going to happen in, in the majority of countries, fortunately. Mm. You know, we shouldn't look upon this event in the Oxford vaccine trial or AstraZeneca, one should really say now, as a critical stop point. Not at all. This will be assessed very carefully and then uh, a reaction will come out. But we need to give people the time to do the work that is related to the due diligence that they're paying to these trials. And I'm glad to see it. Pieter and Matthew, thank you very much. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Next. The government's hardline Brexit strategy this week has been pretty controversial. But how much electoral support are they actually gambling? Or is this the right thing to do to rally up the base? James Forsyth asks a question in this week's political column, and he joins me now, together with Marcus Roberts, Director of International Projects at YouGov. So James, can you explain the dilemma that you identify in your piece this week? So I think one of the big questions in Westminster is why are the Tories still ahead in the polls, despite all their recent troubles. And, you know, if you look at the government's approval rating, it's 30%, yet the Tories still have a poll lead, and that that is surprising. Now, there are two schools of thought. One of those involved in the Tories' 2019 election effort thinks it's all very simple, that there is basically 30% Tory core vote, to which the Tory party have added 10% of the electorate who are Brexit enthusiasts. And that has created a flaw for them of 40%. That would, electorally, that would suggest that you should prioritise not backing down on Brexit, uh, preventing any space for a new political party to emerge, the kind of populist right of you that wants a kind of total Brexit and a tougher line on the culture wars. The other school of thought in Tory circles is that the slogan, get Brexit done, and the deficiencies of Jeremy Corbyn delivered the Tory majority at the last election. But the reason the slogan, get Brexit done, was so effective was not just because voters wanted the referendum result delivered, but they were fed up with Brexit crowning out every other issue in, in, in British politics. And the Tory pitch to kind of to stop the arguing and get back to the people's priorities was what lay behind of that Tory majority. And though people who subscribe to that school of thought worry that a no-deal Brexit, which would undoubtedly push Brexit to the top of the political agenda for uh, a good few months would alienate those voters who just wanted the thing basically done and to go away. And so I think that is which of those schools of thought 
you subscribe to. I mean, it determines how you think the Tory party should have, or the government should approach the end game of the Brexit negotiations. If you are in the first school, you think EU are threatening to walk out, must hang tough as teak, must show everyone that, that, that we've given no ground to uh, the EU. The other argument says, actually, you need to get a deal because the real risk is if you get a disruptive, disorderly, no-deal Brexit, you could end up in a situation where the government's reputation for competence takes a further battering and the Tories fall behind. Marcus, when you're looking at Tory support, and especially at the last election, how do you see this question? Do the Brexit purists, do they need to appeal to them more than the get Brexit done lot, or is it vice versa? Um, Yeah, I I would agree with James that the most important voters for the Conservative Party are the voters that... that, um, the Conservatives gained in December. It also makes sense to me that there's a basic floor uh, for the Conservatives of about 30%, not 40%. I think it's a mistake to imagine that that 10% is is, is locked into anywhere near the extent uh, some Conservative strategists um, seem to hope or think that it is. Um, and I think that that's why wiser heads, as James was alluding to, are saying we need to stay focused on making sure that we deliver Brexit. But it's more complicated than that when we think about the long term, because even though the short term political position of the Conservative Party seems to be shored up by the politics of Brexit, allowing the Conservatives, it would seem, to have a small poll lead over Labour, despite all of the problems of the economy and the um, fallout from the pandemic, there's a longer term problem. And that is that the number one issue in British politics for voters at the moment, polling 52% in terms of most important issue, is the economy. This is followed just a few points behind by healthcare with Brexit in third place behind that. And indeed, during different periods of peak coronavirus over the last few months, We've seen a concern about Britain leaving the EU falling um, not just to the 30s or 40s in terms of uh, percentage concern amongst the British public as number one issue, but even to the 20s. And now fast forward two or three years time. And in two or three years time, it is highly unlikely that Brexit is going to be anywhere near a salient an issue for voters in deciding their votes. And if the polls that we have at the moment are any indication, that's going to be driven by the economy, that's going to be driven by health. The government needs to get a grip on both, or else it's opening itself up to long-term poll problems. James, is that a worry that has been considered in government, that if they go for a no-deal Brexit, the economy will be, in the short term at least, in more trouble? Yeah, I think this is one of the challenges for the, for the government, which is you could see this current strategy the government is pursuing rallies that 40% to its flag, but there isn't an election until 2024. And I think one of the challenges for the government is that it basically won a massive majority in 2019 with a coalition that was glued together by two issues that would have lost their adhesive quality mm-hmm. by the time of the next election. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is gone. Keir Starmer is, it is hard to make people scared of Keir Starmer and the way you can make people, and Annalise Dodds, and the way you can make people scared of Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. And simultaneously, as Marcus said, you know, Brexit will have receded as an issue. In the, and also, if it is still an issue, if it is still going, that would suggest that, you know, there is still continuing disruption from leaving the EU, which might well not be good for the Tories. Marcus, let's talk about Keir Starmer for a bit here. Throughout the summer, it's been competency that Keir Starmer's been going behind, going after the Conservatives for. But this week, we've seen that he's been also tapping into that Brexit fatigue, uh, potential Brexit fatigue. Do you think those are the right ways forward for the Labour Party? 
Yeah, this is clearly the right play for Keir Starmer's Labour Party because it's led to an extraordinary boost in Sir Keir's best prime minister numbers um, to the point where from time to time we've even seen moments where Sir Keir has overtaken Boris Johnson in terms of public opinion as choice of best prime minister. That is extremely rare for an opposition leader to ever beat a, a, an incumbent prime minister on, on, on the best prime minister number. And so that would indicate that attacking the Tories on their sources of strength rather than their sources of weakness is the right way to go. And in this respect, I, I think it's probably helpful to remember the last time an opposition Labour Party was taking on an incumbent government of the conservative nature very effectively. Um, and that's all the way back in the 1990s. Tony Blair and the New Labour Project absolutely understood that there was no need to convince the British people that the Conservatives weren't going to prioritise the NHS or public spending in the same way that Labour would. They understood, though, in terms of the attack, that it was far more important to take away the Conservative competence creed. And from Black uh, Wednesday onwards, that was what occurred in 1992. A relentless and remorseless attack on conservative economic competence, laying into a lack of conservative competence across any number of different issue areas. And it strikes me that what Sir Keir and the Labour Party are now trying to do is attack the Conservative Party's sources of strength, not just play to the Labour gallery. And that's probably pretty smart politics. And James, you mentioned in your piece that the current position that the government is in is keeping a lid on backbench and happiness. But how tense is the atmosphere in the Tory party at the moment, given that a third former leader of the party has just condemned the government's proposals on the internal markets bill and the EU has now given an ultimatum for it to be changed by the end of the month? I think things are tense. And I think that for different factions, there are different issues that cause the tension. But I think that one of the things that has kept everyone calm in relative terms, is this government poly? Because you could go through some of the things of recent months and say, it's hard to say that the A-levels debacle, for example, is an election-losing mistake when the opposition are still behind in the polls. And I think that is one of the things that has kept people calm because people, you, people can't get that angry when the government are still ahead. I think this is the question. I mean, as Marcus was saying about Keir Starmer's approach, right, this competence approach is never going to get set the pulses racing. Mm. It's not a kind of purist approach to politics. But if the evidence begins to stack up, it can begin to work for him. And I think that's why the government really cannot afford many more mistakes. Because I think the public were, have shown a very mature understanding and acceptance that dealing with an unknown virus and a global pandemic is not an easy thing for governments to do. I think that the challenge of this autumn is people will say, well, you knew all this was coming, you knew about this coronavirus now, so, so why weren't we ready for the winter? That, and so I think from now on, it's much more hard sledding for the government. James and Marcus, thanks very much. And last... Thailand doesn't take up much of Western attention, and certainly we don't talk about it often at all on this podcast. But what's happening in the country is nothing short of extraordinary. Francis Pike writes about Thailand's king in this week's issue, and he joins me now. So, Francis, you call the Thai king a modern-day Caligula in your piece this week. Tell us about him. Well, King Vajira Longkorn uh, was born into a, a difficult family. His father was King Bumibol. He grew up at a time when, having been you know, relatively poor and uncertain as to their future as monarchs, the monarchy then began to establish itself very much as a, a political force in 
Thailand. And the reason for that was very simply, governments came and went. There were between 1932 and the present time, there have been, depending on definition, there have been at least 17 coups d'etat. So what's the force of stability in Thailand? It was King Bhumibol, who you know, ended up being one of the longest living monarchs in history. And through that time, he was known as being a, a sort of moderate figure, a, a force of moderation and reason, somebody who favoured democracy, although, as it later came soon, favoured democracy as long as it was within certain parameters. And King Bhumibol also, he had studied law at, in Lausanne, and he served as a district judge. I mean, he actually, he did something quite useful and, and practical. His father had been a, a doctor. So they were quite a practical, you know, useful family. Unlike our monarchy, they did, you know, they did sort of proper jobs which required a certain amount of intelligence. And, you know, he was an you know, intelligent, uh, interesting man. He was a you know, very accomplished jazz player. Uh, I think he played the saxophone, I think. He also toured the country and set up medical facilities for, for poor people and became a very loved and revered figure. So that was, that's the sort of background to uh, you know, the life and the period in which King Bajero Longkorn grew up. But he grew up bad, basically. He was a dissolute playboy. He was a sort of uh, lock-up-your-daughters sort of guy the aristocracy would send off their kids to England to make sure they stayed out of the clutches of this notoriously lecherous um, man. And um, he, from what one hears, he was a gambler and uh, you know, extremely extravagant and was pretty dissolute. So that was his sort of wild youth. Yes. And it continued. beyond his youth well speaking about the present day he's on his fourth wife now and he has a noble consort who is a sort of mistress formalised mistress so he's still a womaniser I also found fascinating in your piece this thing about his dog Fufu can you tell us about Fufu well apparently Fufu was picked up in the local market by his daughter and brought home and, and given as a present to King Vajralongkorn, and he fell in love with Fufu, and he became a virtually constant companion at official events and so on. And the the wonderful story which I relate is where he's dressed from head to paw in black tie for a formal dinner, and then Fufu jumps on the table and runs along and drinks water from all from all the guests' uh, water glasses. So that's the story, and then. The great notoriety and another, um, there were many episodes which got into the public domain in Thailand, which made him extremely unpopular. But one of the ones that made him very unpopular was a video which came out showing his wife cavorting naked with a, just wearing a, uh, a G-string, uh, feeding cake to the dog. And there were various stories as to whether it was the dog's birthday or her 30th birthday, but it was the, you know, sort of semi-pornographic video which did a huge harm to his his reputation. Not that his reputation was good, but it was another nail in the coffin of his reputation. 
And when Fufu died, you write that his uh, cremation was preceded by four days of formal Buddhist mourning for the whole country. So, well, I, I don't know whether that was because it was Fufu or, or whether it was because Fufu was an air vice marshal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I'm not quite sure. You know. A title that he gave to the, the Yeah, the, Yes, so... So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a ludicrous story. I mean, you, you couldn't really make it up. I and mean, he's actually gone better than Caligula. I think Caligula died bef- before he could make his horse a consul. But speaking of the king's reputation, this is something that can't really be discussed in Thailand. And listeners to this podcast will know that normally these discussions take place with two guests. But this week we've had serious trouble finding a second guest because whether it's Thai journalists or British academics, people wouldn't come on to talk about the Thai king. And this is all down to the Lays Majesty law. Francis, can you explain what that law is? Well, the Lays Majesty law basically means anybody who is critical of the king in conversation, in the press, radio, in any format, can be arrested and charged with laissez-majesty. And the sentence for that can be 15 years in prison, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, if you can imagine in, in England, uh, somebody saying something terrible about Prince Charles. And then well, being- all of the journalists will saying things about Meghan would be all locked up. Well, uh, absolutely. There would be hardly any journalists left in, in the UK, except behind bars. So you know, it, it's a very extraordinary situation. And I think it reflects two things. I, mean, I think it reflects the extreme love of King Bhumibol, the predecessor to King uh, Vajralongkorn. So I think that's part of it. And he does occupy a position of almost semi deity mm-hmm. um, uh, historically and there is, there is sort of this fantasy about the Thai monarchy is a little bit you know the king and I and Siam and you know the, mis- the mystery of, of Thailand so there is something semi-religious about it and of course he is you know a very important religious figure in the Buddhist faith and as with all Thai men of a certain standing they have to go and spend time as a Buddhist monk for you know, sometimes weeks, sometimes months. Even, you know, the appalling playboy, dissolute playboy, King Vajralongkorn had spent several weeks in a, in a monastery as a Buddhist monk. So, you know, religion, Buddhist religion is very important to, and to the monarchy. I and mean, this is partly why his behaviour is, so, is so, so shocking. But, you know, these laissez-majesty laws now, of course, in the modern age are, pretty extraordinary and you know Thailand is no longer a poor impoverished country there was a very wealthy middle class it's a country of 80 million pe- people becoming very wealthy growing six percent a year you know rates of growth that we could only dream about in in our sort of backward Europe and it's a country that at a certain point will become a much bigger economy than most countries in in Europe so this is we're not talking about a Poxy third world country here. We're talking about a very serious economy, modern economy, modern young pe- young people, and of course, they are beginning to question the role of the monarchy, particularly as um, King Vajralongkorn gets more power into into his own hands. And so I think there do seem to be problems brewing with this. So they say Majesty law. Now, uh, the king for the time being has been soft peddling on actually arresting people for laissez majesty laws and perhaps he you know it's possible he realizes that you know the the winds there are winds of change here but we will see i mean given his character i think it's pretty likely if anybody 
individually stepped out of line, the, the laissez majesty laws would still be applied. And they are and have been regularly applied over, mm. you know, over the last 20, you know, 20, 20, 30 years. So this is not an imaginary threat being prosecuted under laissez majesty laws. It's a, very, it's a very real threat, which is why you haven't been able to get anybody to come on to talk to me. And I, mean, I doubt very much whether this edition of The Spectator is going to be allowed in Thailand. And other, certainly other magazines who've written about, written about the king and his, his behaviour have certainly been withdrawn from sales. So it's happened to The Economist, it's, hap- it's happened to the Far East Asian Review, and so on. So uh, this is uh, it's a pretty known phenomenon. So what I'm saying is laissez majesty laws are really real. Yes. Well, as, as the academics that I spoke to really felt like that they had to sort of self-censor in that way. And let's talk about the young people for a second. You mentioned these young people who are starting to question their system. Now, there are only thousands in actual numbers recently, but they have been taken to the streets. That's incredible given this political landscape. Do they have to limit their criticism to the politics of things and not attack the monarchy in order to get away with it a little bit? They've been pretty direct. I mean, one of the chances being down with feudalism. But there have been some, you know, more, you know, personal and direct attacks on the king himself. So this is extraordinary. When I read about this, I was was astonished. Uh, But for me, it's a straw in the wind of problems down the track Mm. here. You know, young people are are changing. I mean, the whole belief in monarchy, anyway, in, in a way, is a suspension of disbelief. I'm not a monarchist. I think it's I mean, it's ridiculous and it, and illogical. It does involve a suspension of of disbelief. Now, I'm prepared to do that for a Wagner opera, but but I'm not prepared to do that. Or when for... they don't have any actual say in the country's politics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's a very different situation in England. In in England, it's really a you know a celebrity shit show basically. <laughs> And so it doesn't really matter. I mean, it fills the newspapers and you know, people like it and it's of no real consequence. But in Thailand, it really does matter. Francis, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week. Pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed on the episode, together with more from Douglas Murray on why anyone would risk being a government advisor, Leo McKinstry on the need for better policing, and Ed Hussein on an Islamic enlightenment. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.